Good evening. You know that you are a failure. Every single one of you. There's no denying it. There's no sugarcoating it. There's no pretending that it's not true. It just is. Each and every one of you, including myself, are a failure. The question is, what are we going to do about it? It's kind of like when we tackle the subject of suffering. So often we ask the question, why? The better question is, how? If you live long enough, you're going to suffer. The Bible guarantees suffering. So if suffering is a part of life, then how do you deal with it? We can spend all of our time asking why, but the better question is, if it's going to happen, how do we deal with it? Same way with failure. If we know that it's a part of life, if we know it's just a part of the Christian's walk, then how we respond means everything, doesn't it? We've got to be able to respond successfully and get back up. So the question is not, will you fail? The question is not, what am I going to do if I ever fail? The question is, when I fail, what am I going to do? Many of you, I'm sure, have seen the commercials for Life Alert, where the lady is lying on the floor and she yells, I've fallen and I can't get up. You know, those very low-budget commercials kind of caught fire and people started making fun and, you know, you could hear people reciting that line, help, I've fallen and I can't get up every time they tripped or something like that. You know, it's true that in a spiritual sense, many of us have fallen and many refuse to get back up. Not so much that they refuse, it's just they find it hard to get back up. So many people feel like their place is at rock bottom and so I might as well just get comfortable. They've been down for so long, they don't feel like they can ever get back up. They don't feel like that God would ever accept them if they did get back up. So why not just stay down and make my home there at rock bottom? The reason I'm preaching this lesson tonight is because it's something that affects me deeply. I really struggle with a performance-based mentality when it comes to Christianity and my daily walk with God. And there are days when I mess up and I feel like, well, this day's shot. I might as well go back to bed or just not even try the rest of the day. You ever been there? You ever been to a point where you just feel like no matter how hard you try, you take two steps forward and like five giant steps backward? I know sometimes when I'm on a, an agenda to speak somewhere and they introduce me and, they, and it's a friend of mine who's saying these things, I'm sitting there going, yeah, if you only knew me though. They give these glowing accolades when they introduce you, and you're just sitting there going, yeah, but you don't know the real Chris McCurley. If you did, you wouldn't say those things. And I think all of us have probably been there in some way, shape, or form where we really struggle with failure and how we get back up when we've fallen down. Growing up in the Catholic faith, it was even more difficult for me to wrap my mind around because you had the elite-level people. You had the saints. And in order to be a saint, you had to meet all of these qualifications. There was a procedure for sainthood process that included being counted as venerable and the beatification and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, you had to perform, you know, a miracle and maybe even a second miracle or else die a martyr's death. And that's why, you know, they're struggling with Mother Teresa right now because she didn't perform a miracle. She didn't die a martyr's death and they think she should be a saint. So you have all that controversy going on in the Catholic Church right now because of that. But you look at all of that. And you sit there as someone like me who, who constantly is looking at their performance and you're saying, well, I'll, 
will never reach that level. And so it, it shows you that there are these elite Christians or these elite people, and then you're sitting there thinking, well, I guess the best I can hope for is just being average or pretty good. Often associated sainthood with being the best of the best, and, 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 and for good reason, because to be a saint meant that you had attained the highest level or stature of goodness. And of all the good that I could even attempt to do, I would never reach that level. But then I turned to the New Testament, and I found that word saint many times. And I found that word saint used in reference to people that were baptized, immersed into Christ, people who were seeking to follow Jesus, but people who had failed, sometimes more than a few times. You look at this word saint in the scriptures, and you see that, that saint is not a moniker for people who have only performed miracles or for people who are now dead or died a Christian martyr's death. The word saint is used for regular people like you and me. People who are holy and set apart, people who have been sanctified, justified by the blood of Christ. A saint is one who has gone through the process of sanctification. A Greek word, hagiosmos, is used there. This, this now denotes that which has been set apart from the world for divine service. The child of God enjoys a special relationship with the Lord as a saint. And that hit me. It, it, I'd always associated sainthood with something that I would never attain, and yet in Scripture, we see people who are immersed into Christ being called Christians, people who have failed over and over again. And we see that, based on Ephesians 4 and 1, all Christians who walk worthy of their calling are saints, that it's not a title reserved for the elite. You are a saint. I am a saint. If you've been immersed into Christ, if you're seeking to live faithfully, you have been sanctified, you've been set apart. The fact that you are a saint refers to your status in Christ, and therefore it is a name or a title that we should not take lightly. However, it does not mean that you are perfect. It does not mean that you will never mess up and that if you do, you lose your sainthood. It's not what it means. It means that we are a child of God that seek to live sinless lives, but we're not flawless. In fact, saints are sinners who have learned how to get back up when they have fallen. It's not about perfection, although we should be striving for excellence in our daily walk with God. It's about resiliency. In other words, it's not about how far you fall, but how high you bounce. The same Peter who denied Jesus three times is the same Peter who gave that soul-stirring sermon in Acts chapter 2 in which 3,000 people were immersed. David was a man after God's own heart, even though at least two of his offenses against God were punishable by death. Due to a sinful lifestyle, the prodigal son found himself living with the pigs, and yet he resolved to get up and change his situation and go back home and seek restoration. Moses, Abraham, Jacob, Hezekiah, a host of others throughout Scripture that we read about were people who had fallen but got back up. Example of, of men and women that we see throughout Scripture who fell but bounced back. We all fail. The question is, will we get back up? 
how will we respond to failure? Because I think resiliency is a key component in our daily walk with God. And I think it's a key component in our fellowship as well. If we are a team, and we are, successful teams know how to handle failure. They know how to rally around one another and pick one another up when they fall. They don't devote an exorbitant amount of energy to letting someone wallow in the mud. But rather they help them as much as possible to get back up. Unfortunately, I've had people come and sit in my office for several weeks on end, and finally I said, you know what, it's not doing you any good to come here. Because all you want to do is rehearse all the things that you've done, and you don't want to get better. And if you're not going to do what I ask you to do, if you're not going to try to, to get up out of the mud and quit wallowing, then why do you come? Why are we wasting our time? Some people just want to wallow, unfortunately. And there's not a whole lot that we can do to help them. But for every person that wants to wallow, there are countless others that want to get up and they want to make something better of themselves. They want to, they want to pop back up and do something, but they, a lot of times, just don't know how. They're embarrassed. They, they've, got, they've got a lot of pride. They're ashamed. They don't believe that God can ever forgive them. Whatever the reason, there are so many who find themselves lying on the ground saying, help, I've fallen and I can't get back up. We should love one another. We should bear one another's burdens. We should be devoted to one another. We are family and family looks out for one another. You had to know that I'm not going to talk about a sermon based on a basketball concept without bringing in basketball into it, right? One of my proudest moments as a coach was when we were playing this other rural school not far from us, and they were very good. They always seemed to have our number. But this particular night, we were playing pretty well. And the game was tied with eight seconds left. We had the ball, and we had to go the length of the floor. Plenty of time. These are situations that every Wednesday we worked on. Every practice on Wednesday was devoted to special situations. And we had worked on this situation. So we got in the huddle, and we called a play, and the ball gets inbound, and it, it's coming down the floor, and the ball ends up in the hands of a sophomore by the name of Artie Whitener. Artie was a good kid and a good player, but not exactly the kid I wanted taking the last shot. He comes down gets all the way to the basket and lays the ball up and gets fouled and misses the layup. No time on the clock. So, Artie gets to go to the free throw line to win the game. He gets two free throws. He gets a chance to win the game with no time on the clock. That is a very lonely place to be because nobody's in the lane. Why would you have anybody rebound? There's no time on the clock. So the other team has already gone over to talk to their coach. My team has come over to stand by me, and Artie is by himself on the free throw line with about 1,200 people watching him to see if he can make at least one of these shots. All he's got to do is make one, and we win. Steps up to the line, takes a couple of dribbles, shoots it, hits it long off the back of the rim. It's okay. Team is saying, it's okay, Artie. It's good. Relax. We got this. All he's got to do is make this one. He gets the ball, and he holds it, and he dribbles it a couple of times, and I knew. I mean, at this point, I'd known kids long enough. I'd coached kids long enough. There ain't no way he's making this basket. 
He had thought about it too long. You can just see his face. You can just tell this moment is too big for him. And rightfully so. I mean, most of us would probably struggle in that situation. He gets up to the line, and this time he doesn't miss it long. He misses it short. And so we go to overtime. After he missed that shot, the blood rushed from his face. He could have collapsed right there on the floor. But my proudest moment is every kid on my team, including the last guy on the bench, ran out there and hugged him and brought him to the sideline, all of them telling him, it's okay, we're going to win in overtime. Don't worry about it. No big deal. We should have made our free throws earlier in the game, and it wouldn't have come down to you. A team rallies around one of their fallen. A team is there to pick one another up. You know, in a situation like that, you would have fully expected, at least I would have, some teenage kid going up going, great shot. Yeah, nice job. We could have won the game if it wasn't for you. Put me on the line, I would have made it. But they didn't do that. How are we going to respond as a team to the failure of one of our brothers or sisters? Are we going to point the finger? Are we going to gossip? Are we going to say, well, you know, I wouldn't have done that. Therefore, you leper, get away from me, right? Or are we going to rally around them and carry out these one another passages that Paul talks so much about? Back in the 30s, there was a woman who decided that she was going to bake some cookies. And she was using a recipe that goes back to colonial times, and she got a chocolate bar, and she cut it up into pieces, and she put it into the batter, and she mixed it up, and she put the cookies in the oven, thinking that the chocolate would, would just melt into the cookies. But of course, when she pulled them out, she had these little chunks of chocolate in her batter, in the cookie themselves, and she came up with what is now probably the most famous type of cookie there is, chocolate chip cookies, right? Uh, what a successful failure, right? It's not what she intended to do. That's not what she wanted to do. She wasn't setting out to make a very popular type of cookie, but that's what happened. We can be a successful failure. Failure doesn't have to be fatal. It doesn't have to be final for us. One of the greatest beauties of the Bible is that it teaches us how to, de to turn defeat into victory. As we said this morning, the Bible is a book of hope. And when we read the pages of the Bible, we see that there is a way to turn defeat into victory. Consider Psalm 51, starting in verse 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Also Psalm 34 and 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And then Psalm 147 and verse 3 reads, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. To be a successful failure, at least it seems to me, you've got to first come broken. And most of us don't have a problem with that. Oh, well, if that's a prerequisite, then I'm there, right? I know all about being broken. But brokenness should be also accompanied by a willingness to do something, a resolution to be better. Brokenness coupled with despair is what we're looking at. We're so distraught that we have sinned against God that we want to do something about it and we never want to repeat what we did before. We want to steer clear of sin and we want to please God. 
A foolish failure keeps doing the same thing over and over again and never finds relief. But a wise failure is one who learns from their mistakes and seeks God in the process. Brokenness must be met with desperation. It's not enough to realize that you're down and out. Sin has had its way with you. You're a hopeless mess. That's not enough to realize that. Those at rock bottom have to understand the gravity of their situation, and they must be desperate for a resolution. Don't wallow in your brokenness. Be willing to do something about it. Judas sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver, and he felt remorseful. I, for one, am one that believes it. I'm not sure Judas realized the gravity of of everything when he agreed to it. I'm not sure he understood completely what was going to happen to Jesus. Nevertheless, we can debate that at some other time. He had remorse, and he tries to return the money. But how did he deal with his brokenness? He tied a rope around it, didn't he? He killed himself. Instead of turning to the only one who could rescue him. Do you believe that Jesus would have forgiven him? I do. Maybe I'm crazy, but I do. So many people have made their home in brokenness. And they don't understand the urgency or they don't recognize the urgency of the matter. If you were... If you were in the water, in the middle of the ocean, drowning, and there was someone there with a life preserver reaching out their hand, would you tell them, not right now, let me figure this out on my own? Of course not. You're desperate in that moment. When we're broken, we should be desperate. We should be reaching out to the only one who can help us. Because brokenness and desperation should lead to restoration. David certainly highlights what we've been discussing, right? Again, back in Psalm 51, starting at this time, uh, we can kind of pick and choose here. Starting in verse 1, it says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. You skip on down. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. And of course, David's contract prayer did not fall on deaf ears. We know what led up to this prayer, his sin with Bathsheba, having it pointed out to him by the prophet Nathan. David was low. He was broken. And in his desperation... He had a willingness to come clean and to have the Father make him clean. Scripture is clear that when we confess our sins to a holy God, that he is faithful to forgive us. Of course, admitting wrong is of little value if there is no resolve to do better. But having that resolve to get up, to fail successfully by going to the only one who can restore us is what we're looking at. Repentance is a distinctive quality that determines that we will no longer be a repeat offender. That not only are we, are we sorrowful that we sinned against a holy God, we don't want anything to do with sin any longer. Now, does that mean that we're never going to fall? Of course not. We still fall. We still, we still find ourselves broken at times. But we have a cure. Brokenness and desperation 
should stop us dead in our tracks and remind us that we need to recalculate our roots. It's easy to get off track. And U-turns are allowed in Christianity. In fact, they're necessary a lot of times. Someone once stated, the freest person in the world is the one with an open heart, a broken spirit, and a new direction in which to travel. And repentance gives us that new direction. But what happens all too often is we're like a truck stuck in the mud and we're spinning our tires. And the more we spin our tires, the deeper down into the rut we get. We're trying to fix this on our own. And if if you've been broken for very long, you know that you can't fix this on your own. You can get broken on your own, but you can't get out of that brokenness on your own. You need God. You need the help of your church family. One more basketball analogy. You know, when I was coaching, the one thing that I understood, and it doesn't take a genius to figure it out, is you're not going to make 100% of your shots. It's just not going to happen. And so you work on another aspect of the game that is crucial, that is vital, and I think maybe the most vital besides defense, and that is rebounding. A rebound is a second chance. It's another opportunity to put the ball in the basket, or it's an opportunity for you to keep the other team from scoring as you rebound their miss, and you try to take the ball to the other end and score for yourself. Great teams are great rebounding teams. They they understand the value of rebounding. And it's not just about going up and grabbing the ball from the opponent. It's about positioning. It's about understanding that i got to be in the position for a rebound. With our kids, we talked about angles. We talked about the math of it. We talked about if a guy is taking a shot from the corner, a three-point shot from the corner, where is that typically going to miss? Be at the front of the rim. A lot of times, that's where it misses. Be ready to grab that rebound. Be in that position. Anticipate the misses. Anticipate where the ball is going to be. And what's true in the game of basketball is true in the game of life. It's true in the game of of Christianity. It's true in the church. And that is that the best rebounders are the most successful when it comes in their daily walk with God. You're all a failure. Let's just get that out of the way. People say, well, if I could just be good enough, you will never be good enough. But you don't have to be. You have to fail successfully. And that is when you're broken, when you have despair, you meet that with a resolve to pick yourself up, to go to God, to expose your heart and say, I'm broken, I need your help. Too many people are are living a life sentence in despair because they don't think there's a way out. Get out of that prison. And find new life in Christ. And if you're a Christian who is constantly looking at your performance and constantly saying, well, I never measure up, then understand you won't ever measure up. But the beautiful thing about our daily walk with God is that we have a Savior whose blood continually cleanses us, as John wrote, when we come to Him in humble repentance and with a contrite heart. Need the prayers of this family tonight. If you need us to rally around you because you're struggling with something, Or maybe you've been broken too long, you're ready to do something about it. Let us help you. Come now as we stand and as we sing.